0: On a first ever edition of a China Talk emergency podcast, Samuel Hammond of the Niskanen Center joins us to talk about the latest developments of the Endless Frontier Act. So, Sam, what was the dream circa a week ago of the Endless Frontier Act?
1: (laughs) Well, it has been changing steadily, and I I think a lot of people actually expected some of these changes. The Endless Frontier Act um, was originally introduced by Chuck Schumer and Todd Young uh, last year. It really grew out of even earlier conversations with Mike Gallagher on the House side, others interested in doing something big to spur U.S. support for research and development and and science, sometimes framed in the context of uh, a technology arm's race of China, sometimes just for technology's sake. But I think it is notable that in its original form, it was very driven by national security staff within the Senate, staff who... Don't necessarily have the you know the background in, or or are part of sort of the academic research establishment. So they came at it with a a sort of fresh set of eyes, and and their approach was to say, well, there are these ten areas. That the areas are somewhat arbitrary and, and broad. Things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, advanced manufacturing, material sciences, advanced energy research, um, chips. Uh, you know, chips, of course, chips, uh, methods of uh, mitigating climate change. There are a bunch of very big issues that need a lot of dedicated attention. We can't necessarily micromanage our way to solutions in any of these areas, but what we can do is create a new organization. So the original idea was to create a new technology directorate at the National Science Foundation with a specifically tech and applications-focused mission to have sort of a civilian DARPA, if you will, with the same program authorities, same sort of flexible hiring and grant-making ability to take a huge pot of money, so originally $100 billion in over five years, put that money to use in growing American technological capabilities in those in those 10 different areas. So
0: that sounds really cool. Sam, why do you sound depressed?
1: <laughs> I sound depressed because, uh, you know, good things don't last forever. Uh, <laughs> so la- la- last week the bill was progressing, and-, and as many people expected it to progress because uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was an original sponsor of the Endless Frontier Act, it progressed through the U.S. Senate Commerce Committee for markup, which is an opportunity for everyone to get their piece of the, <laughs> the pie. And-, and and honestly, that stuff is expected and sort of part of the n- normal way of doing business in Congress. And it's, it's totally fine. Anytime there's a big piece of legislation, especially one that people think will pass, members will try to get their thing attached to it. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what surprised a lot of people and surprised me is that people weren't just adding things to the proposal. But at one point, uh, uh, Senator Cantwell, who chairs the committee, sponsored first a substitution amendment and this is an amendment that basically substitutes funding for one thing and switches it to another, that took away a a huge chunk of the directorate's funding. Then there was another amendment from Senator Lujan from New Mexico that required the directorate to divert most of its, a, a substantial amount of its funding through the national labs. So instead of creating a new thing, channeling that money through existing national labs, of course, obviously, New Mexico has several national labs. <laughs> um, and by the end of it, over that five-year period, instead of getting $100 billion, the technology directorate now gets $29 billion, of which only about four and a half is uh, discretionary. So the rest is for scholarships, for academic tech transfer, diverted back to the NSF, et cetera. So instead of having this big sort of autonomous... Organiz- DARPA like organization with a lot of resources to move nimbly and flexibly. We now have a basically what is turning into a kind of like tech subdivision of NSF,
0: um, which which you know has some resources and can do some cool things. Um, you know, I guess like what is it? You you did the math and it was something like. Three hundred million dollars in the first year, going up to three billion, maybe by twenty twenty six. We'll see how much ends up getting appropriated. But still, this is very different from the the scale, which it seemed like there were, seemed it seemed like there was some consensus on in, in, in Congress for spending uh, a few orders of magnitude more, specifically on this push toward applied research as opposed to the base the the more basic stuff which the national labs and sort of big science, uh, you know, mainline NSF is likely to, um, uh, it, it, you know, would be, would be doing otherwise.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's right. I mean, America has always had a, a, a lot of leadership in basic research and science. and Obviously, our academic research is world, world class, but where we've not excelled is, you know, translating that research into scaled production, especially scaled domestic production. And that's something that is particularly relevant in in the the context of sort of this perceived or real technology race with China or other countries, which is that, you know, we can do the designs, we can do the basic research, uh, but once that paper is published in the archive or or wherever, it becomes public knowledge. Whether or not it's public domain, it becomes public knowledge. And And that's actually the argument for funding basic research, is that it has these positive spillovers that but the but the positive spillover spillover everywhere, right? And so, if you really want to secure technological leadership and not just be able to say that you invented the thing, you have to transfer that technology into actual tangible production, and, right? But, and that requires real resources, right? It requires real resources to scale. And in, in, in my piece, I talk about you know the solar panel industry as an example. Um, I'm, I'm sure that DOE funded many of the breakthroughs that led to, you know, more efficient photovoltaic cells and stuff like that. But what really turned the page on solar and led to massive drops in cost was Germany and China pouring a bunch of money into scaling up production. Yeah.
0: And to be clear, inventing the thing gives you a head start. It gives you the sort of talent pool of those graduate students and, and and professors who came up with this stuff in the first place and who are probably most well positioned to take that and refine it and scale it and bring it into the market. But that Chain, which uh, I have a series of podcasts coming out in the next week or two, uh, exploring in more in more detail, uh, isn't is is you know has some missing has some missing links to it, and the hope was that Endless Frontier was going to be able to address that, and it seems like that's not necessarily where what's going to happen. The House version of this bill doesn't even have a a, a, a tech initiative and is basically like entirely you know a little like it's it's much it's smaller scale, and then basically just like giving giving nsf money to increase its budget and um i think what was the what was the line we went from like what was what, what's the, what's our, what's our final dollar amount change
1: these specific things less than 10 billion over over five years yeah um you know there there's more money that goes to scholarships nsf their budget will go up by i forget the exact number of probably three or four billion something something on that magnitude but they have a bunch of bunch of that money gets uh mark for STEM, STEM workforce development. Yeah. So, so none of this stuff is really useful. useless, right? All, a lot of the stuff, you know, passes even the, the strictest cost-benefit test, right? Because R&D is just that useful and STEM education is useful, scholarships are useful, but th- there's a qualitative difference between uh, sort of tinkering around the margins and um, doing real institutional evolution, right? And, and my argument is that longer run if china does have an edge in anything it's it's not financial resources it's not stem degrees it's the ability to adapt their institutions and and what i mean by that is you know if we look back at us history whether it's the creation of the national labs or the creation of mit and the, and the land grants that established a lot of our research universities like we went through periods of real institutional rebirth where we created new organizations with new cultures and new missions and today we're living really with the vestiges of, you know, in the case of NSF and um, a lot of these science agencies from the 1940s, right? And that's not bad, but, it, you know, even private businesses become kind of complacent and sclerotic over time and need to be, you know, Ford or General Motors that need to face competition from Tesla or what have you. And, uh, and, and government institutions don't have that natural ability for, like, you know, competitors just emerge out of nowhere. You have to, and actually, this is another interesting thing. You know, one of the thing, things people underrate about China is the extent to which they build redundancies and then make those redundant organizations compete with yeah. one another, right? Right? <laughs> Even their provinces and and lower units of government, like they're competing with each other um, in a way that creates a degree of dynamism that the U.S. institutions just lack. And you know, I com- I finished my my piece with the with the story of Annivar Bush walking into. Uh, President Roosevelt's office with a, a single sheet of paper describing the national Re- research, defense council. Um, and, uh, Re- President Roosevelt approved it within 10 minutes and that research council, it, it didn't last that long, but it helped seed the Manhattan project. It helped seed some of the research behind sonar and radar. Um, and, and yeah, so like if there's any long run risk that the U S faces, whether against China or against, you know, the, another pandemic. The, the D- Department of Defense took over a year to create their own mask yeah. right, right, for, for for COVID-19. That's just, That signifies a degree of uh, institutional lock-in. Um, and one of the bright spots of the Illinois Frontier Act was, hey, we're actually going to make something new. Um, and actually, you know, it may sound like it costs a lot of money, but $100 billion over five years after we just spent a year sending out, you know, $400 billion stimulus checks every three or four, four months. It seems like it seems like yeah, a, uh, a smart use, smart use of funding. So,
0: so should people call their congressman? What's the, uh, what's the call to action, Sam, <laughs> for the endless frontier act of which it seems like one journalist is actually following and only five people, <laughs> two of which include me and you on Twitter care about.
1: I think there's still a chance for something to change because you know by far, the biggest hit was the amount of money they're getting and and those appropriations could change i I do think the longer run the the issue the you know the the phone calls coming from inside the house in some sense, right? So you know the National Science Foundation itself doesn't want to be overshadowed, and maybe maybe one of the mistakes was tying this so closely to the n s f yeah. rather than just doing something discreet, but there's no turning back on that at this point. Uh you you can try calling your congressman, I I, I but the, the politics are so um uh so pedestrian. It's it's not like people don't care. It's that Ben Ray Lujan has national labs in his state, yeah. right? And he's not going you know, and he's doing his job, right? Um and I think the bigger thing is why why do it at the expense of doing something new um and in, in innovative rather than doing both particularly when we know that these are sort of long-term investments that pay for themselves in spades where, you know, the SBA has a program for the summer. They're going to be giving us $16 billion in grants to, to entertainment venues like South by Southwest that were hurt by the pandemic. That's $16 billion for, for you know, festivals and stuff like yeah. that. It's going to be a wild. It's going to be a wild Look, time, but I mean, like, like,
0: like I love, uh, <laughs> I love, I love jazz. I love jazz. Um, yeah. You know, I, I love jazz bars, but I would really love a sort of, future ar virtual reality which really works that the nsf makes allowing me to go to any jazz bar in the world anytime i want to and those 16 billion dollars are not going to get me any closer to that future exactly so uh yeah i mean the the whole idea of building it within the nsf i think it was a mistake from the beginning because you know once you have the the sort of expertise that gets a get that gets um Related to when you do that sort of thing are former NSF directors and all of them are dedicated to the idea of mostly academic driven basic research. And they saw this and they're like, what the fuck? Um, Which is which, again, is understandable, given that this is the institution to which they've devoted their lives to and change is scary. And I guess, you know, talking to 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 Hill staffers, the idea of it just being too hard and too complicated to set up something new is a bummer. And look, like, I think your characterization of China is, uh, is is, I can, I can certainly complicate it. Um, you know, there are downsides to having lots of different organizations doing the same thing in terms of waste and debt and inefficiency. Uh, but at the same time, you know, one of the best performing, uh, like, uh, little corners of the U S government is the consumer protection bureau, which was founded, um, what, 2009? Great. And when you start something from scratch, you can design it in a way in which is, like, made for the time and the moment. And you, you can hire an entirely new uh, crop of, of folks who are mission-driven. And, 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 and that freedom just, like, really doesn't exist in current bureaucracies as they exist and taking scalpels to current bureaucracies are really hard because there are a lot of vested interests who are vested you know again not for bad reasons this is not like the sugar lobby right like asking for subsidies for farmers these are scientists who are trying to like make the future um but at the same time it's just like come on guys like have a little imagination like this is this is like how how cool could this have been
1: right if there is any chance of this coming back i think it will have to be from um, you know, folks in national security, uh, really making a point to say this is this is about, this is goes beyond science and academia. This we're we're trying to do something important here, um, and maybe not everyone
0: understands the full context. Sam Hammond, thanks so much for being a part of this emergency edition of China
1: you been...